Wow, what a cold crowd. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's good to see you all. It's good to see you. Thank you, Mary. So that I don't forget my manners. And because I mean it, my wife and I, we appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I do consider it a privilege. And I thank the committee and I... I thank everyone, and I thank my friend Charlie. I think that uh, the strange meeting he and I had a year ago, about 5,000 miles away from where we live. You never know how these things are going to develop. Sometimes in AA, when we talk about past tragic things, we laugh a lot. And people who don't understand us who aren't used to us have a little trouble with that. We laugh because we have been set free. We can laugh because in sobriety we have found fun. Now, if you're struggling and you hear somebody talking about sobriety and freedom and fun, you must wonder what kind of an idiot is that. It doesn't make any sense. Especially if you're in your anguish and you want to drink one day and the next day you want to be sober. By the way, that doesn't mean you're insincere. That just means that's where you're at. I believe in your illness, in your recovery. And I believe that if you stay with us, if you stay close that in time, your day will come, and yes, you will say, that's right, in sobriety, we are free, and there can be fun. My name is Garth, an alcoholic. Well, I come from a long line of drinkers, either hard drinkers or total abstainers. Very wet or very dry. On the dry side, my dear great aunt was the Canadian president of the Christian Women's Temperance Movement, and that's as dry as you're ever going to get. <laughs> On the wet side, my father, he's been drinking hard for more than 55 years, and he's still going strong. In his better days, he decided it might be a good idea to send me to a rather expensive private boys' boarding school to learn some stuff. Now, I did so well there that before I was 20, I was drinking hard and living on skid row. I was a roaring success. I wasn't visiting there, I mean, I was living there. And by this time, my alcoholism had already rendered me quite useless. I was like this. Applying for a job, uh, I would ask, how much does the job pay? And the man would say, well, we'll pay you what you're worth. I said, well, I couldn't work for that. 
what I felt like about myself. Before I was out of my 20th year, I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. There were some things about AA that I liked, and there were some things about AA that I didn't like. Some of the people I liked, I didn't like the idea of not being able to drink. That was a problem for me because, as you know, alcohol for us is an answer. And it served a purpose and it did some things and not to drink seemed ridiculous to me. But I stayed long enough to hear some neat things. They talked about things like this alcoholism being an illness and a disease. And that if I had it, and I did then there was some kind of an obsession that compelled me to drink. And there was some kind of an allergy in my body that would condemn me to go on doing so once alcohol was in my body. And they said that this alcoholism was a progressive illness. Over a given period of time, it always got worse. It never got better. And that no alcoholic could come back from uncontrolled drinking to controlled drinking. They talked about this business of how powerless we are, and once we take the first drink, then the terrible thing is set in motion, and the disaster that follows, I always thought it was the last drink that caused all my trouble. And as you know, that kind of thinking is like, Believe me, when you get run over by a train, it's the caboose that kills you. <laughs> they, uh, they talked about this, this strange mental blank spot that we have when in the face of disaster and all others can see, but we find good sensible reasons for us to take a drink. And they talked about this tendency that we have to try and go back. We try all sorts of things, don't we? This geographical change and the change of people and the change of drinks and on and on and on. Anything to try and control our drinking. And we're told that many alcoholics will try so hard that they will suffer under this delusion and many pursue it into the through the gates of insanity and death. Well, I was twenty years old and uh, that was a that was a long time ago, more than thirty years, and there weren't a lot of twenty year olds in AA then. And I thought maybe I'm insane, but I'm not dead yet. So I can't stay in this organization. I've got some drinking to do, so I left and I, I drank and I got drunk. And I drank and I got drunker. And I did a little bit of work, used other people's money whenever I could, went into a couple of small businesses, lost someone else's cash, worked here and there at many things, drifted a lot, drank and drifted. I always wanted to go back to the east coast of Canada, a beautiful place, my birthplace, small little island. I wanted to go back and show them what a success I had made in my life, but every time I went back, I was always drunk. 
there was one time I was back there and I I was very drunk and I, I was at this, this friend's place out on his farm and I got drunk and I passed out in the in the ditch with his pig. And the, the old parish priest uh, who had baptized her whole family came along and Father Callahan and he saw this spectacle and he, he said a fellow isn't very fussy who he lies down with. So the pig got up and walked away. This drinking of the water here is not a nervous habit. I'm just still thirsty. I've got four big jugs here. I don't know if it's going to be enough. But God, you're good. Yes. You're so alive and you're so responsive. I just don't want to go home. Gosh, look at that. Just great. Just great. Well, it's been said that a man takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. One time, I took a drink, and I was on the drunk, and I decided to go to our Canadian Championship football game uh, a couple of thousand miles from where I lived. That happens in November. I went there for a weekend in November, and I came back home in April. So the, the decision was, was not mine. Alcohol was ruling my life and everything that I did. On that drunk, I ran into an old, an old drinking buddy, Doug. Doug was as crazy as I was. And we ended up traveling and drifting. And, and in that drunk, we, we settled into a motel. And we knew we were in big trouble mentally and in many other ways. We decided that we would try to help ourselves to, ourselves and at the same time outfox the long arm of the law. So we arranged to go to a mental institution for treatment for our alcoholism and we would make the decision but before we would pick up the telephone each day we would say, well wait a minute, let's go and get another bottle of whiskey and talk this over before we go to that place and the days rolled into weeks and the place was a shamble. You could hardly walk for empty bottles. And the decision was made for us because, of course, what happened is, in Doug's case, his family uh, and the doctor came in and they simply took Doug away. And as Doug was going out the door, he said, well, aren't you coming? We promised we would do this thing together. And I said, yes, I'm your friend for life, Doug. I'll be right behind you. I'll make the arrangements. They took him to the mental institution and I wrote a bad check and flew to Florida. Now, of course, when I got to Florida, the first person I met was myself. The problem was still there, of course. More trouble. I called back to Winnipeg, and I got in touch with this psychiatrist who had tried to help me, and I asked her, if I get back to Winnipeg, could you get me into that mental institution? She said, yes, you get back here, and I'll help you. So I wrote another bad check, and I flew home. <laughs> and she got me into psycho, and then she got me into self-court mental institution. It's a big institution in our area. In those days, when you came in, they locked you up. They put us up on the fourth floor, and then as we behaved, we'd come down to the third floor, then to the second floor, to the first floor, then out onto the grounds, and then we would escape. Then we would get whiskey. 
And then when we come back onto the grounds and we drink the whiskey and we get in trouble and we get other people drunk and then they would put us back to the fourth floor. And they would lock us up and we would get good and we would go down to the third floor and second floor, the first floor and we would get up and we'd escape and we'd get whiskey and we'd come back and we'd go. We spent the whole summers going up and down and up and down like that. And eventually, the doctor said, look, we're busy people. There's people in here who need help. And you can't be in here for treatment for alcoholism and drink while you're here. We're disrupting everything. So if you drink again, we're going to throw you out. Of course, they, they caught us. We got drunk again. They threw us out. We weren't so smart after all, about as clever as a couple of outhouse rats. Because when we got to the door of the RCMP, and I'm sure you all know the RCMP, who they are. They, uh, yes, I know you do. <laughs> some, of you may, some of you may have even met them. <laughs> uh, they were there with the bracelets, bracelets and they, they locked us up and they put me into the local jail and they took me from the local jail to the Vaughn jail and from there to uh, the Winnipeg jail and from there to the Regina jail and from the Regina jail to the Saskatoon jail and from the Saskatoon jail to the Prince Albert jail and eventually I got out of there because some AA helped me and when I got out of there I wanted to turn my life around and become sane so I got some whiskey and I drank and I drank and I wandered some more and I ended up in an area and some kind of destiny I suppose was taking place because at that place I met my love. I met the love of my life. But then, there was a problem. First off, Ev was experiencing her own very deep tragedy. There had been death and, and more. And she was coming through that misery and I was in my alcoholism but somehow we found a little bit of hope in one another and we talked about making a life. And as much as I wanted that, it wasn't possible because I wanted to drink more or had to drink more and that's what I did. So I continued to drift and to get into trouble. A guy by the name of Harry, an alcoholic, came into my life around that time. Now, Harry told me he hadn't had a drink for oh, about four years, but he didn't tell me that he was chewing all those colored pills. And we decided to go on a trip. We called him going to work. Now, I'm not proud of this, but this is just the way it was. Going to work meant that we went out and, and borrowed money and things from people without their permission. So we traveled throughout that time, northwestern United States and Canada, and my drinking was getting worse, and my pro the progression of my alcoholism was, was getting worse. I was starting to hallucinate most of the time, even while drinking. I knew I had to get back to this place in Brandon, where there was another mental institution, also where Evelyn was. Harry died shortly after that 
I'm not sure if he was insane or not, but he died in a mental institution. He was a young man. When I got back to Brandon, I called the psychiatrist in charge of the hospital, and I asked him if he would take me in as a patient. I knew that was the only way that I could get sober, because that was my pattern. He said, no. Now, he says, we have your record. We know about you. He says, you've been in our institutions before in this province, and you're, we can't deal with that kind of a situation. And now I know, of course, he was quite right in what he was saying, because they were busy people with other people who really needed help, and he would naturally question my sincerity. But I knew I had to get in there, so I decided that I would do whatever I had to do, and they would have to take me, so I decided that I would kill myself. And I worked on it. I finished off the wine bottle that night. And I actually hurt myself a little more than I had planned on. And I got very scared. You know, I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to die worse. I was running through this hotel, bleeding, screaming for help, and this is a suicide attempt, right? <laughs> <laughs> please help me, please help me, get me to the hospital. And they got me to the hospital and the doctor patched me up very nicely and he said, young man, you know where you're going, up on the hill. And in that community, up on the hill means only one thing. That's the mental institution in Brandon and that's exactly where I wanted to go in my state and that's where they put me. Now, when I got in there, I don't... One day I wrote a letter. That's not true. It took me a week to write this letter, and it was only about three-quarters of a page. And I wrote this letter to Evelyn, and I wanted it to be letter perfect. And I took all this time, and in my opinion, it was just right. Later I found out that this letter was just a page of madness. There was no sense, rhyme, or reason to it at all. For instance, if I wanted to say in it, I'm doing okay in here, and when I get out, I'm going to change my life. I'm looking forward to seeing you. I might say in here, I you see when I get out, doing okay later life. I mean, it just didn't, and the point is, so I thought I had it right. I really did believe that. So that was the state of my mind at that time. Now, before, when I went into a psycho ward or a mental institution, I could always get out, but this time it was a little more difficult. They weren't willing to let me go when I was ready. <laughs> so, I started to work on that, and I had to try and demonstrate to them that I was rational and that some sanity had returned, and I truly wanted to do something about my alcoholism, and finally they did let me out. And I demonstrated to prove to them that I was okay by getting a big bottle of whiskey. And I drank, and I drank, and I wandered, and I drifted, and I did so well that I moved in to a bootlegger's and lived there in the cellar all one winter. Now, about that time, a guy by the name of Tom came into my life. Now, he had been in my life prior to that, but he came back into my life. He was a member of AA, and he knew 
a lot about me. And he had some information he knew I must have. And he didn't know if I was even in the country, but he found me in this bootleggers, and he dug me out in the middle of the night, and he took me to an AA club room. And he said, Garth, I want to tell you this, and you do with it what you want, but here it is. And I think what he was doing for me then was very much the same, excuse me, as Dr. Silkworth did for Bill. You remember, Bill was sober about six months, and he was calling on all kinds of alcoholics, and he stayed sober, but he, he, none of them got sober, not one. So he asked Silky, he said, what's the problem? And the doctor said, Tell them, Bill, the nature of the illness. Don't preach at them. Not now. They don't understand that. Well, that's what this fellow Tom did for me. He told me about the nature of the illness. He didn't say I'd be a better citizen. He didn't say that I would uh, get a good job. And he didn't say I would have uh, a family. He didn't say that I would have respect in the community. He didn't say any of those things. That may be, but he said, look, you're an alcoholic and you know that and you're down for the count if you drink. The situation is hopeless. You're finished. And we can talk about the hopelessness of alcoholism in AA, can't we, because we offer a solution. He said, Greg, the medical opinion from Selkirk is that if you drink for another year, your brain will be permanently damaged. If you come back to Selkirk one more time, you will not get out ever. Now, I don't know whether it was true or not, but the bells rang. The bells were just ringing all over the place. And I remember the feeling when he said that. I said, Tom, take me back to the bootleggers. And I went back there and I poured the biggest drink I could get my hands on. And I drank and drifted some more and wandered some more. And the best part of a year rolled along and I was drunk, I guess, maybe nine or ten months, whatever, at that time. And I found myself on the highway going to a small town in northern Manitoba, in our area. Now, the reason I was going north was because there was a warrant for my arrest in the east. I had jumped bail in the west, and I had just been deported from the United States in the south. So, so there was no only one way to go, and that was north. Now, at this point, it's important that I say this in case there's somebody here from the Department of Immigration. <laughs> I have a special card that allows me to come into your wonderful country at will. My government has given me a pardon, and all of my transgressions have been forgiven, and uh, I am very grateful to your country uh, that allows me to come here now because I have family members that live here. As a matter of fact, I have one brother who's an American. So that's uh, for the immigration department. <laughs> well, this day that I was on the highway, I was doing so well that all of my belongings were packed in an envelope. 
and all of the clothes that I had on belonged to somebody else. And that's a fact. And that's a fact. It had somebody else's shoes, pants, shirt, coat, everything. I was looking for a drink that day. I wanted to keep drinking, but before the day was finished, I met an old priest. And through that meeting, somehow, I made the decision to go back to AA. Now, I believe what happened is I was given the gift. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking, and that is the gift I was given that day. I believe that it's a gift, and it's been said it's such a precious gift that we must hold on to it with great care, because if we drop it, we may not be able to pick it up again. I had a period of time in AA then where the sky was blue every day. You know, I don't know how it works, but I was sure that if I got sober, I still had to go to prison because of the charges that were out there. I wasn't notorious. I don't mean to give that impression. I was a bad thief. I wasn't anything big. <laughs> But I was sure that would happen, even in sobriety, but that didn't make any difference. But somehow, all of the problems were sort of held back. And Evelyn and I spent, I remember, a beautiful summer in the sunshine, mostly around a swimming pool, and it was just a healing kind of time, like so many good things were taking place. And I was going to meetings on a regular basis, and I had a couple of little jobs, and I was making a little bit of money, and, and things were just getting better and better. But I couldn't see the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous that was happening in this alcoholic's life. I couldn't see it clearly. I was sober for the first time in my life for the best part of a year. And I started to look around with other people, and I would compare my insides with your outsides. And I would see that you were doing a lot better than me. And I started to think about all of these failures in my life and what was wrong. And You know, I had a sponsor one time, Pete, and he said, if you start comparing with other people, you come up a loser because you're going to feel better or worse than the other person, and in both cases you lose, the best you can hope for is a better you. But I didn't understand it then. So one day I bought a bottle of whiskey, and I drank it. And then I got more whiskey, and I drank more and more. Now, I thought I had tasted defeat. But now it was different. Complete hopelessness came upon me because, in my opinion, I did everything right. I went to a meeting every day. How come I got drunk? I had defeat before, and we all experienced defeat. And we're told that we have to come to that place of absolute, total defeat for us, whatever place that might be. And certainly it varies. But it had to get very dark. And the madness had to be very strong. 
That had to happen before I could surrender. Really surrender. That seems like the worst place for us to be, but I suppose in many ways it's the best place because I had to be there before that surrender could take place. And in that surrender, I was able to come back to alcoholics, the willing heart. And since that time, 23 years ago, I haven't had to take a drink since. Thank you. I wouldn't mention that because it impresses hell out of me. <laughs> well, now I started to discover the fellowship of AA in a real way. Some neat things really started to happen. I didn't know about this. Because, you see, I had such a terrible, low opinion of myself, I guess I thought everybody had the same opinion of me that I had of me. Right? So, I didn't understand how that worked. I didn't know that there was no judgment from the fellowship. But that's exactly what was taking place. Like, nobody cared where I came from or what I did. The only thing that was important was I was there, I was welcome, I was wanted, and I was needed. And if you wanted and needed in a community where we're not judged, and we may not know very much about love, but somehow we feel it. And out of that, there's a healing that takes place in our lives that we don't have to understand. And I sure would not try to explain it. But we start to grow and we start to develop and all kinds of new, exciting things happen. Some of the things are not exciting. Sure, there's struggles and whatnot. One of the exciting things that happened is I got married. Evelyn and I got married. I finally got a chance to to marry my love. Now, that seemed impossible, impossible at one time. We had three daughters. We still have three daughters. Well, three adults now. I have a Christy and a Heidi and a Janie. And... Uh, I started to learn some things about that kind of relationship. In AA, someone said, why don't you go to some meetings at the jail? So I did that. They said, why don't you go to some meetings at the mental institution? So I did that. Someone said, why don't you come into service work? So I did that. I got involved in service work on various committees, and I had some growing experiences there. Oh, I stayed a little too long, and I missed the principle of rotation, and went... I got to the place where when I was starting to meet somebody, you know, I wondered, I wonder if they got a vote. And uh, that's not a very healthy place to be. And when the committee I was serving on, you know, my time was up, then I would create another committee so I could be involved in it. And all that kind of stuff is important. And, you know, if we're called to do that kind of work, well, I think we should answer the call. I think we should answer the call according to the traditions. Not the way I did it. However, I was learning. And I was growing. And I was married. And I was working. And I was making a little bit of money. And paying some of my bills. And just some of them. Those were the only amends I made, you know, so I could get some more credit. And uh, 
I got in, I got in trouble in, in, in some trouble in my sobriety, as some of us do. Not trouble with the law or anything like that. I became all very pure. I wouldn't want to leave that impression. Nothing like that. But things were going along very well. But something wasn't just right. And I was going to lots of meetings. And I was active. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what was not just right. About that time, a guy by the name of Paul came to our area to speak at a conference. And he talked about something called untreated alcoholism. And he talked about some of the symptoms of this untreated alcoholism. One of them was depression. Some others were anger and dishonesty. I got thinking about some of those things, and I, I felt some dishonesty creeping in from time to time. And anger was a problem. It was a constant problem. There was lots of deep resentment there that I hadn't dealt with, and other things. And sure, there was self-pity, but you know, the next thing to that depression, that's something else. I couldn't seem to work right. I'd get ahead of steam up, and, and at that time, later I was able to establish a business, but at that time I couldn't establish much of anything, and I would... I would go out and work, and I would work as a salesman, and, 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 and some days I'd be positive, but occasionally it only last an hour. And I'd go out in the country, and I'd be so negative, I had all kinds of excuses. I'd look at a farm, and I'd say, well, I couldn't sell that farmer insurance. He's got a big farm. He's, he's, he's wealthy. He's probably got top-notch agent. He, well, we want to talk to a little peddler like me for. And then I'd go to the next farm, and be all run down, and say, well, this guy couldn't afford anything. Look at the place is falling apart. Then I go to the next place and he's still got a great big dog. He'll bite me. I can't go in there. And I just go on burning gas and burning gas and not making any money. And I go back to the pool room. I used to go in the pool room and play pool all afternoon. I was no good at it. I never made any money. And then I would uh, stay in the motel. And in the morning I would hide under the covers. Now I know no one in this room has ever done that in sobriety, right? Nobody's had any trouble with that. But I just couldn't face life some days. Now, some get better quicker than others. I wasn't very quick. I wasn't very swift. So, things were kind of coming apart there. And more importantly than that, at home. I was at home surrounded by love. And I couldn't respond to it. So it was something... You know, it was like this. I would want to... I loved my wife and I loved my children, but I had trouble saying it and showing it. And I would be coming home, and I heard this, and it applies. I would say, well, I will practice saying I love you, I love you, and when I get home, I'll say I love you. And when I would come in the door and slam, and I'd think, what the hell is for supper? Well, I understand that kind of thinking, because that's not what I wanted to say. But that's how it would come out. So I was closed off to love. This guy said, look, if you're willing to pay the price, you don't have to feel that way. You can get better in your sobriety. And the price is a willingness to work with the steps, all of the steps, on an ongoing basis. And if you'll do that, you can get better. Well, I dug my heels in for almost a year. I said at one point, listen... I'll tell you what, let me get to know God a little better, then I'll do the steps. 
And he said, of course, maybe if you do the steps, then you'll get to know God a little better. You see, I couldn't do the steps until I recognized the problem. We know that applies to us in the first step with our drinking. And the problem was me. Me while in sobriety. And when I came to that conclusion that this self-centeredness, this problem of self, that's it, then I could go forward. And this selfishness, this, 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 this terrible uh, self-consciousness, always being concerned about what you thought about me, how did I sound, how did I look, or how will I be, or will I get what I want, when I want it, will it be my way, can I control the situation, can I control other people in my life that are close to me, so they'll do what I want them to do, when I want them to do it. And that can be a very subtle thing, you know. I'm sure you know. It's a very subtle thing sometimes. Other times it can be very ugly. Well, this self thing, by the way, you know, this, this business of wondering about what people are thinking about us, it's been said that we wouldn't worry about what people think about us if we knew how seldom they did. <laughs> well, okay, so now I see the... I see the problem. And I want to make a decision to do something about it. And I can see also whether I've made the decision, what the measure of that decision is by my activity with our fourth step. So that if I go to work with the fourth step and I start to find out the truth about me, and at the first time, the first pass, often we miss a lot. I did. I did. That's okay. The important thing is that I start. It's been said it's a little like peeling an onion. An onion. You know, you take one layer off before we can get the other layer off. There's all kinds of things there that this self manifests into. Defects of character, we call them. Now, when I started to see some of that stuff and write it down, obviously I didn't like it, but I was getting to the truth about me. The next part of the exercise bothered me a lot because this sponsor of mine said, well, now what you need to do is you need to talk to other people about this stuff. You know, in a, in a meeting we talk in a general way, right? But in, in, in our fifth step, we talk to people in a, in a very intimate, personal way. And I was a very private person. I don't know about you, but I didn't want people to know those things because I thought if you knew the worst about me, I thought if you knew my shame, then you wouldn't like me. And you'd reject me. So I would hide that and I would put my mask on and I would show you somebody I was not some of the time. I was not transparent in any way. You know, I did my first five experience with a clergyman who was a great friend of AA, great friend of AA, he, he said, look, Garth, you go home, you think about the worst thing that you ever did. And when you think about that, you write it down. And then you think about the next worst thing, and then you write that down. And when you get finished, he says, you come back and talk to me. Now, at that time, 
I couldn't think about defects of character. I mean, I, I just couldn't understand that. I couldn't analyze it as a sentiment. The best I could do was what he suggested. And that exercise was a highlight in my life. Because I remember that scene very clearly. I sat down and I closed my eyes. And you know, it says that we admit to God and we admit to ourselves. Well, the hardest thing for me was to admit to myself. Because when I would think about those revoking episodes, those nightmare memories, I would blush for shame. They were ugly and I would suppress them. I would put them down, thinking they went away, but they didn't go away. They were still there. But this day, I let it surface in my mind's eye and I looked at that experience. And I looked at it and I looked at it and I somewhat accepted it and I wrote it down and another one and another one and another one and I had a whole long list and I called up Monsignor Emston I said i got to come and talk to you about this he said fine we'll make an appointment next no no I said right now i got to come <laughs> you either have to let me do it now or I'm never coming so he could see the urgency in my voice there hear it I suppose so I went over there and I just got it all out and I did that <clears throat> but you see what I stopped doing was just that I didn't do it for quite a long time. And this guy, Paul, of course, could see that was part of the problem. So I did my next fifth step with him. And when I got finished the step, I was holding my stomach, yeah, I to say those things. And when I got all finished, I said, I'm sure glad that's all done. He said, in your case, I would suggest at least another five or six right away would be required. <laughs> I said, yeah, i got to do this all over again. Well, as it turned out, I did many, many, many fifth steps with other male members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Good water. So, <clears throat> as it has been said... If you want to stay sick, stay secret. And that's what I was doing. And I don't want to stay sick, so I won't stay secret. I want to be free. And the work that we do with the fifth step opens the door to freedom in a very large way. But because I've made the decision, and because I've illuminated it in four and talked about it in five, that doesn't mean it's all gone away. Right? The next question is, what am I going to do about it? And I think step six is all about willingness. It's a lot like the, the gardener. There was an empty vacant lot. And this was a terrible place full of weeds and everything else. And Mr. Jameson cultivated it into a magnificent spectacle of beauty. And the right Reverend Kennedy came, came along one day and he saw this and he said, Mr. Jameson, he says, it's marvelous what the Lord can do. He said, yes, I guess that's right, Reverend, but you should have seen this place when you had it all to himself. <laughs> so I think step six is a little bit like that. We have to do our part, but we also know we can't do it all ourselves. And when we enter into the help that is there for us in the seventh step, we go to a prayer 
And the prayer, as you know, is like this. It's a beautiful prayer. My Creator, I am now ready that you would have all of me, the good and the bad. And I'm so glad that's put that way because we don't have to reach any particular measure of spirituality to come to our higher power. We come as we are. And the prayer goes on to say, I now pray that you remove from me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Amen. It's good for me to remember that that is a prayer. It is not some mental gymnastics. It's a simple, powerful prayer. One time a friend of mine who's not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous said, Garth, you remind me of somebody pulling a little red wagon, and the red wagon is full of dirty old milk bottles that are empty. And each milk bottle has got a dirty old smelly memory from the past, and every now and again you stop and you uncork that milk bottle and you sniff a dirty old memory from the past. I said, right. So I should stop smelling those milk bottles, right? No, he said, let's go on the little red wagon. (laughs) But how do you do that? Right? Well, I believe that we do it through the willingness, the listening of, and the making of the amends in our lives, in my life. Now, there can be a very big block here, I believe. I've experienced it, and many of my friends have told me they've experienced the same block. And that is, am I the culprit or the victim? You see, as long as I believe I'm the victim, then why would I make an amendment? Especially the important life-giving amends. I know that everyone in this room has been wounded. And some have been wounded very deeply. And you carry great scars. And I know that it's probably necessary at least one time or more to talk about the hurt that you have received. But I know for this alcoholic that if I talk about the hurt that I have received, the resentment only grows and grows and I get sicker and sicker. I can do nothing about what was done to me, but I can do lots about what I did to others. And I believe the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous and the spirit of the eighth and ninth step is where I finally take full responsibility for my life. What can I do to make it right? Am I willing to clear away the wreckage from my past? Now, in my case, most of my amends were cash. Right? That's not a surprise. Now, there are other amends that are, can be much more important than that. And there were others that I had to make amends to. Certainly. 
My, I wasn't married at the time I was drinking, but my mother and my brothers and my sisters and so on. It took me a long time to pay back all the money I stole. But I think it's important when I talk about the money that I did steal and laugh about it, I think I should say I paid it all back. Otherwise, this program is just empty words in my mouth. And I have to tell you, I was guilty of not doing that for a long time. For instance, if I wanted to get a new jacket or a new suit or make an amend, I always got what I wanted. If I wanted to trade my car, I traded my car. I didn't make the amends. If I wanted to go on the trip, I went on the trip. But the day came when I had to make a decision. Am I going to answer for my past or not? I won't be free unless I do. So I made the list. And it was a depressing list, but I felt good about it. And I knew that I was going to do it. And I didn't have to wait until I got to the end of the list to feel good. Because once the heart is set in the right direction, I believe the healing starts to take place. Now, as I was in AA, I have to tell you, I know this has never happened to any of you, but I had a few amends to make with AA members. I mean, I had a couple of run-ins, and some of them were long-standing. And one particular guy, who I used to sponsor, I'm sure he was 99.9% wrong in this relationship, and I could get a hundred people to agree with it. And in six minutes, I mean, I could assassinate his character, and I could get all these people to join in. We could destroy him. But you see, I wasn't ready to forgive him. And that was a problem. A long time ago, somebody asked the question, how many times must we forgive? And the answer, of course, was always. So I had to come to that place. For forgiveness kills resentment. In resentment, there's only isolation. In forgiveness, there's unity. I didn't figure it out. I didn't know what was happening. But it came to me this way. The sponsor of mine said, have you made all your amends at one point? And I said, yes, I think so. He said, well, what about your family? And I said, oh, my mother and so on and so forth. Well, he said, what about your father? I said, well, my father's an alcoholic. Well, he said, do you think in that relationship throughout your whole life there was never an occasion where you may have harmed him or caused him any embarrassment or any hurt? And if you think you did then think about what you should do. Sometime later, I had an opportunity to travel some distance, a couple of thousand miles plus, to where my father was. And this was, I think, a highlight of my recovery. I was able to go to him at last and tell him I had thought about our lives and that I was truly sorry for the hurt and the embarrassment that I had caused him. And I was not to say anything about his alcoholism or what lack I, or what harm I may have received from him. It was important that I didn't talk that way. I put my arms around him. Now, if you could see the two of us, it was like two icebergs. I mean, my father doesn't show any emotions. And I told you I had a little trouble being closed off to love. 
with people who love me dearly. But I put my arms around him, and I told him that I loved him, and I held him so tight. I wouldn't let him go. He just squirming in my arms, and I held him back. I wouldn't let him go. Oh, God, God, I said, it took me such a long time to do this. And then I could just feel him soften in my arms. And, you know, I know I meant what I was saying, and I knew that he knew I meant. Now, in that father-son relationship, a healing has taken place. I don't claim that the healing is perfect, but a healing has taken place. And I believe if I want to be free, I must learn to forgive. We know that we are told in, or suggested to us in one of our, in our literature, that it is by pardoning others that we are forgiven. I think step 10 is all about today. There's lots of good, happy things there. It doesn't have to be morbid reflection, not at all. Sure, I've got to look at what's wrong. But I think I've got to look at what's right. Right? I think I want to size up the day. How are things going? And some days are going really good. I think I should acknowledge that. So I want to know what's making things work right. In the 11th step, I called again to prayer. A prayer that's a little different. I'm called to meditation. I happen to have a sponsor who spends a lot of time at meditation, and he bugs me about it all the time. He's done so for 15 years. Even though I don't want to do it, I do. And I find it a little nebulous to even speak about it, but I know it's so important for me. For me, I need to do it in the morning. I go through my prayer in the morning the way I went to my whiskey. I must have it. I don't think it's a bad thing to rely on. And when I pray, I think I enter into a relationship that is so special that there are no words to really adequately describe it. In the earlier part of our program, you know, in the second step in our literature, we're told that this idea of God is fundamental in every man, woman, and child. And it is only deep down within ourselves that we will find this great reality. And I believe that when I enter into prayer, that I enter into an experience of God within myself in a special way an experience of love. And because of that experience of love, I am no longer closed to love. And I can be with my wife and my children and others, and I can respond to their love. I can receive it, and I can give it. I can have no unity with you unless there is unity within me. I cannot trust you any better than I can trust myself. I cannot like you any better than I can like myself. I cannot love you any better than I can love myself. So out of this recovery comes this spiritual awakening, this unity within ourselves which gives us unity with one another and the golden opportunity to do the greatest thing 
to share the gift with others. This gift that is so precious, this gift of sobriety, each and every each and every one of us in a very special way, in a very unique way, I believe, shares this gift with other alcoholics. And this gift that we're talking about is the very gift of life itself. And for that, I thank you.